0: Please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. There is no harm done, but I'm sorry for any confusion about the order of today's services and our themes for the two services. We're going to finish Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. We're going to take up Jesus Christ, our Passover, in the second service. Let me read to you one sentence. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Amen and amen. amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us our sins in a practical way and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and grant us thy Holy Spirit to behold wondrous things out of thy law. We thank thee for the glorious gospel of the law of liberty that we are able to read and distinctly and give the sense. Help us to this end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is a privilege, a great privilege, to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and to be your pastor this morning. I hope that in the future, when you think of Ephesians chapter 1, you might say to yourself or to others, There's only four sentences there. Let me share four sentences of God's Word with you. The first sentences in verses 3 through 6, accepted and adopted. What a glorious sentence that was. About God's eternal phase of salvation, choosing us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Verses 7 through 12, we entitled Redemption and Inheritance. And there's the blood of Christ that we will be considering all day today in uh, verse 7 of the first chapter. Because that is how we obtained our redemption and the forgiveness of sins was through His blood. But that was sentence number 2. Sentence number 3 is verses 13 and 14, which is purchased and sealed. And a further aspect of our salvation leading us toward heaven And then we have a long sentence, verses 15 through 23, which is enlightened and resurrected. We see in verse 17 that the Apostle Paul is praying and he tells us his prayer requests. When the Bible gives us the prayer requests of a man like the Apostle Paul, we want to be thankful, read carefully, and alter our praying that it might match his. And so he says that he's making mention of them in their prayer. Is prayers in verse 16. And here's prayer request. He first of all invokes who he's praying to and who would be the source of the blessings that he's going to ask for. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray for you, Ephesians, with whom I spent three years, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you more of the Holy Spirit. I know, brethren, that I just wrote a few verses ago that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and that He is the earnest of your inheritance. But I'm praying for His ministry of enlightenment and revelation. And I want him to reveal to you three things. The first one is at the beginning of verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. This is simple, and I want all of you to understand it. The Bible tells us what preaching is. When it says preach the word in 2 Timothy 4.2, it is explained in Nehemiah chapter 8. To read in the book in the law of God distinctly and to give the sense and to cause you to understand the reading. And this chapter is not difficult. The prayer request of our beloved brother Paul was for more of the Holy Spirit in this church which we desire for our church to this end. That the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. That this spirit... Whom he calls here the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. All these were understand the word understanding, the word enlightenment, the word eyes, the word knowledge, the word enlightened. All these words are precious about an increase in your knowledge and understanding about God and your salvation. So after saying that in verse 17 and verse 18, He then introduces the three prayer requests of what he wants the Spirit to reveal to these believers more perfectly. What is the hope of his calling? God has called us to be the sons of God. And what is the hope of that? What future does the great doctrine of adoption lead to in our lives? What is the hope of his calling? Number two, what? The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The glorious riches of our eternal inheritance, that we would know them, that we'd be enlightened about them, that the eyes of our understanding would be open to see them more clearly. And third, what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? There in verse 19. And from there, the apostle goes on in a lengthy explanation of the demonstration of God's power in saving us. A simple (laughs) chapter. Chapter. Love it with me. Let us pray these kind of prayer requests yes. rather than the ones we are prone to pray in our flesh, wanting to consume it to some measure, small or large, upon our lust. There's nothing upon our lust here. This is God's desire for us to know Him and His salvation of us better. Though Paul had declared salvation about as powerfully as anywhere in the Bible, in the first 14 verses of this chapter, he wanted these believers to fully grasp it, and he knew he would have to pray for the Holy Spirit to help them do so. So you see the three prayer requests. And if you mark your Bibles, you may mark that word, what? Because it occurs three times there in verses 18 and 19. What is the hope of his calling What? The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. There is more enlightenment after regeneration and conversion. Covet it. Pray for it. Seek it. God can give greater enlightenment. Much greater. The apostle is going to build even beyond this. Because when we get to chapter 3 he is going to describe the four dimensions, he uses four terms, to describe the dimensions of Christ's love for us, and that if the Holy Spirit would strengthen our inner man to grasp it, we could be filled with all the fullness of God, and that it contains knowledge, the Holy Spirit strengthening us, contains knowledge about the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That passes ordinary human knowledge revealed by the Spirit of God about spiritual things. He is going to build. He builds throughout this epistle on the various ministries of the Holy Spirit, which I have enumerated to you before. We want our eyes to be opened and our, and to be enlightened about these things. Your spiritual understanding and observational ability can be improved to comprehend God and what He's done for you. Right. And it will change your life. Remember how I started this morning. This is not in line with what Matthew said several times. Dry doctrine. Sterile doctrine. To be put on a shelf in a systematic theology. This is the practical knowledge of God that should change our lives. Like Galatians 1.24. And they glorified God in me they glorified God in me Saul of Tarsus said we want to say that and a truly changed life comes from understanding these things at a higher level than those Christians that don't have changed lives the apostle Paul's life was drastically changed and he tells us why in second corinthians chapter 5 where he said the love of Christ constraineth me And he reasoned very logically that if one had died for all, then they all were condemned to death, and that he died for them, they shouldn't henceforth live unto themselves, but they should live for him who died for them. Is that logical to you? Does it make sense? Does 2 plus 2 equal 4? Well, if it does, then we ought to be the 4. Because that's the love of Christ, and that's what the apostle wanted for these Ephesians. For us to grow in what God has done for us. What is the hope of His calling? I explained last Lord's Day. We are called to be the sons of God. And that includes a relationship with God and things He is going to bestow upon us that are marvelous. Unbelievable were it not for faith. Then what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? the incredible wealth and happiness that God has in store in heavenly places for us when we shall be with Him forever with the Lord. The taking away of every negative thing we've endured or seen in life and the bringing in of things that our eyes haven't seen, our eyes haven't heard, and our hearts have not even imagined. The glorious riches of the inheritance He's planned for His children. But now we come to verse 19, and I want to get right into it. This is the third thing, and some of it will be repetition, and much of it will not be from last Lord's Day. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? Do you love the power of God? That power has been exerted in the universe for you. It was exerted in the Lord Jesus Christ raising Him from the dead, and it was exerted sometime upon you if you're truly a child of God since your conception when you were born again by the mighty power of God. This is the third prayer request that the apostle wanted this church at Ephesus to have a further understanding of. That the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and that they would grow in knowledge about this fact. The power that was exerted. Once you grasp the power that was exerted, you know that there's no power in heaven, earth, or hell that can take you away from God or interrupt your eternal destiny. Their power is nothing compared to the power of God. You have the hope of His calling, and hope is what gets us through any temporary distraction or difficulty in this life. We know that there are glorious riches coming, so the riches of this world should not entice us. And there's been power exerted on our behalf, No one can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you are in Christ's hand, no man can pluck you out. And you are also in God's hand. No man can pluck you out because he has almighty power. He is omnipotent. You know, in America, we have to deal more with impotence rather than omnipotence. Thank you, Lord, for having all power. Do you delight in God's power, God's praise and worship leader in the Bible, which was David delighted in the power of God. And if you go read the Psalms, you're going to read many expressions there about David delighting in God's power that he loved to go into the sanctuary where he could see his power. Now, how do you see the power of God in that little tent set up that they had when David was king? How do you see God's power? The same way that Job expressed it when he said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ears, but now mine eye seeth thee. By hearing the declarations of God's power. What he has done in the past, what he will do in the future, and dependent upon his power. I would love to take you through a survey of Psalms right now. It's in my outline, but there is no time for it. I hope that you know that about your praise and worship leader, David, the inspired one and what he had to say about the power of God. But you've read Genesis chapter 1 recently. His creative power is clear throughout the chapter. But he created light in that third verse. Let there be light. And there was light. There's no other basis for light. Whatsoever. Let there be light. An omnipotent creator with infinitely wise design and the power to make it happen. And there was light without the sources of light because they weren't created until the fourth day when God made the sun. I like that. Light without the sun and light without Thomas Edison. Let there be light. And there was light. And he separated the light from the darkness and he made the sun and the moon in the fourth, on the fourth day. And he said this, or Moses recorded it this way, he made the stars also. Amen. The hundreds of billions of stars, no one knows the number of them, no one can count them. But he made the stars also. So we glory when we read it. We don't get very many chapters and we see his power in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 in the flood. There had never been rain on the earth. He opened up the fountains of the deep and poured down rain from heaven. And so we have cataclysmic results and symptoms that are still on the globe today, like the Grand Canyon, by the power of a universal flood, and that all nations and cultures have a record of a worldwide deluge that drowned all men. We go a couple more chapters and we run into the Tower of Babel. And all these people have drastically different languages around the globe. Cannot communicate with each other because the mighty God said, Be confounded because they were disobeying him at the Tower of Babel. God was glorious in power, destroying and mocking the Egyptians with his ten plagues after his two signs and after drowning their army before drowning their army in the Red Sea. That's about 13 miraculous events. Ten plagues, two signs, and a destruction of the nation. And getting his people caught up on their back wages before they left town. (laughs) God boasted to Job of his power. By Elihu and by God himself in the book of Job. Job knew about the power of God. Isaiah gloried in the power of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. There's many verses like this. Isaiah is one of the favorite places to go. I don't know why I'm turning to Isaiah, but didn't turn to David. I think it's because if I'd have turned to David, once you get started, you just want to keep going with all the statements that David said about the power of God. But let's try one from Isaiah. Chapter 40 and verse 26. Amen. Lift up your eyes on high. Why would you leave your eyes horizontal? so that you can look at others that came into this world dirtying themselves. And when they leave this world, they're dirtying themselves. Verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. These are the stars. He knows their number. We don't know their number. We can only guess at how many there are. He calleth them all by names, By the greatness of His might, for that He is strong in power, not one faileth. Who and when put those balls of energy together? The Lord God did. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold the host of heaven, and know that He has the number of them, and He calls them all by name. When you go out and look at night and you look up, and you wonder what are those little pinpricks of light? They're stars, and he knows them all by name. And we only see a less than a token of a tithe of a token of a tithe of a token of a tithe of a token of, a of, a token of those stars. I, how about Jeremiah? How about these great prophets of the Old Testament? Jeremiah chapter ten. Jeremiah ten about power Jeremiah 10:12 he hath made the earth by his power he hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion this is our god and so when ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 pops up and it says that the third prayer request was for us to know better what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward, Not in creation. Not at the Tower of Babel. Not in the flood. But toward us. <coughs> in Luke chapter 5 and verse 17, it tells us that the power of God was present to heal. There were sick people all around and there were Pharisees there that was hindering, but the power of God... To heal was present, and he healed those that were sick. How about Jesus for everything he did? He raised the dead, and he gave power to his apostles, and he went about performing miracles. The residual power of his death and resurrection caused earthquakes and miracles when Jesus was raised from the dead. The power of Pentecost in the tongues of fire And the miracles the apostles could perform, including raising the dead. And their changed lives. Look at the change in Peter from Passover to Pentecost. In 50 days, the timid one was the bold one. Thank you, Lord. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything is upheld by the word of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only explanation for it. There is no other. But the hallucinations of deranged God-haters. He upholds all things with the word of His power, and by Him, Colossians 1.17, all things consist. Amen. Similar examples of God's mighty power could be multiplied from the Bible or from our limited view of the world almost indefinitely. You know when you read about Russia's mother of all bombs that she dropped back in about 1963, and it was a third stage hydrogen bomb requiring two nuclear bombs to go off in succession in front of it in order to ignite it. um, It's a it's a pretty big thing. It's a pretty exciting thing to read about. But when you think about a, a hydrogen molecule and so forth and how the, the power that is stored up in there, where'd that power come from? Right. It came from someone who's got so much power, he could just throw it abroad in the universe and put it into elements like that. Amen. And all we are able to do is get a demonstration of it once in a while to remind us that something more powerful put power into things that we pull apart or jam together, depending on which one we're happy to do that day, mm-hmm. to show the power that's contained there and we haven't tapped anything right. yet. We'll see it, though, when the universe melts with fervent heat. Most of you probably don't even know about the Soviet's mother of all bombs because you were born after 1960 and you barely know about it. You know, Americans were building bomb shelters and scared to death, and elementary schools were getting bomb shelters and so forth. And You know, you just had to trust the newspaper because it certainly didn't affect anyone else other than those people that lived in a... Two thousand mile radius of a detonation point. Anyway, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? Letting context direct us in Ephesians chapter one. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? Then he's going to give another demonstration of that power being the resurrection of Christ, and Paul will run that he will run that demonstration all the way through the end of chapter one. Then in chapter two, he will go back to the demonstration of God's power to us who believe, who were once dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world and obeying the prince of the power of the air. But God delivered us by his mighty power, regenerating us, right. quickening us, creating us, resurrecting us spiritually. And we want to let context help us understand the order of things here. Because down through verse 10 of chapter 2, we don't want to get waylaid. We want to see that there are three prayer requests. The hope of His calling, the glorious riches of His inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of His power in regeneration and in resurrection. Or, if you want to go in the order of how they're explained in detail, the resurrection of Christ and our regeneration. But it is power that was put forth toward us that believe. And so we want to think about regeneration. Letting the context direct us, we see two resurrections from death by the power of God. Jesus Christ's resurrection from death and exaltation to God's right hand is by God's power. And it's in verses 20-22 through right here in this first chapter. Our resurrection from death in trespasses and sins and exalting exaltation with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places is by God's power in the first seven verses of chapter 2. The power has already been exercised in you, proven by your faith. And it will keep you. He will never lose you. If you believe the gospel, God has already used His exceeding Great power on your behalf. But you need spiritual understanding to fully appreciate His power on your behalf. Your hope and your inheritance are absolutely certain by God's power in Jesus Christ for you. It is exceeding great power. Even His mighty power, which cannot be hindered. When we use the words, Almighty God, There is no one as mighty. He's almighty. And He has all the power for us. If you're in Christ in the Father's hands, like I've already said, none can pluck you out. We revel in examples of His mighty power. Now God told our first parents in the Garden of Eden that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There was a very real death involved. You know, is man still got some faculties of mind? Yes. Does he still have some faculties of body? Yes. We know that Adam didn't die physically because that is a minor part of his being, though a definite part of his being, for 930 years. The Bible, in giving the genealogy of tracing all the way from Adam to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a consistent genealogy and time and years running all the way to Christ in the New Testament, you have two genealogies of the Lord Jesus, one tracing back to Adam, one tracing back to Abraham, Matthew 1 to Abraham, Luke 3 to Adam. He didn't die for 930 years, but that was a physical death. Something happened to him drastically the moment he ate of that fruit because all of a sudden he and his wife knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. There was a corruption of their morals. There was a corruption of their understanding. There was a corruption of their innocence. There was a corruption of righteousness because they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of that tree. And so as as soon as you get to Genesis chapter 3, you're reading about this corruption of the human race. And God had already identified it in chapter 2. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The devil's lie was, thou shalt not surely die. Just the addition of one little word somewhat changed the doctrine from man dying in trespasses and sins and man not dying. But when we look at chapter 2, it says at verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We see God saying they would die. We believe it. We then see the immediate effects of their death in their shame about their nakedness and them putting some fig leaves together to try to cover certain body parts that all of a sudden were off limits to sight. Who told them that? There wasn't anything like that in the world up to that point. They ran around and walked around and looked at each other in in complete nakedness 24-7. It had never crossed their mind that any part of their body was different than their nose until that moment. And here we have the Apostle Paul telling us that that spiritual death was still true upon the Ephesians, but God had rescued them from it. The devil in the Garden of Eden and ministers today teach that man is not really dead. He's just sick. All you need to do is take him the gospel and tell him to believe. But if a man's dead spiritually, how are you going to get him to believe spiritual truth? So they're still preaching... The devil's lie. For those of you that have been long members of this congregation and remember our brother Leon's father and the grandfather of four in this church, Clarence Carnell, loved to say to me there at the end of his life that the lie, not quite that loud, but the intensity was equal. The lie of the Garden of Eden was still being preached today by false preachers and false teachers. That man wasn't really dead because that's where the whole Arminian scheme comes from. If you want to know how to talk about salvation with an Arminian, a free willer, a human means, a decisional regenerationist, you always, by necessity, must start with depravity. The depravity of man. You have to start with man's condition, man's will, man's corruption, then you realize there must be a power that is put forth outside of that man operating upon him and changing him in order for him to ever even be able to believe the gospel, right. let alone to actually do it. So let's let the context lead us. You know, when when the Lord wants to raise somebody from the dead, He'll, he'll make sure that they're dead sometimes. For your learning. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was very sick, the Bible tells us in John chapter 11, he stayed in the same place. He did not go rushing off to get Lazarus while he was still in his sickbed. He waited until he was dead. Then when he finally got there and he said, roll the stone away, there was resistance to that happening because he had been dead four days and he surely by that time would stink. stink. And that's the man that Jesus Christ said, Lazarus, come forth. Amen. And he that was dead came forth. That's right. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 very quickly. because we And we are doing this because of what is in the middle of verse 19 of chapter 1, where it says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward? Who believe? And then he gives a demonstration of it in Christ's resurrection. And in these verses that I'm going to quickly run over with you, he gives a demonstration in our regeneration. God has changed us. Any person that is here believes the Bible, loves the Christ of the Bible, fears the God of the Bible, and is willing to live in hope of eternity rather than the soap bubbles this world has to offer, has been changed. And it took... The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead for us to be here today. Amen. And I praise His great and glorious name and let's be thinking upon this to change even more by more perfect obedience to His Word that they glorified God in you. Do they glorify God because of you? Does anyone glorify God because of you? Some of you, no one glorifies God because you're not changed. Do men glorify God because of you? 2-1 And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The verb to quicken means to make alive. To give life to. Jesus is going to come to judge the quick and the dead setting those two things in opposition, then the word quick means life versus the word dead. And you hath he quickened. The When you were dead in fleshly sins, the only remedy was quickening you. To give life to a dead thing is a resurrection. There are really two resurrections in view here. And the second resurrection we typically call regeneration. Because it's to generate again. It's to produce as a child again. And it's to be... Born again. It's what makes us the children of God. The first time we were born makes us the children of the devil. The second time we were born makes us the children of God. It is called being born again. It is called being regenerated. It is, it is a resurrection. It is a quickening. The only remedy was quickening or a resurrection. Because of what verse one says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. There is no way for one that is dead in trespasses and sins to cooperate in any form with anyone in order to get life. He's dead. You can't help a person that has died from cancer with a cure for cancer. They're dead. You can't ask the, the simplest task of them. They're dead. And so we have to be given life first. And what kind of force does it take to do that? In the apostles' comparison by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to get you to believe the gospel, what kind of power does it take? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 2. Verse 2. Wherein, that is in your state of death, spiritual death, in trespasses and sins, wherein... In time past, ye walked according to the course of this world. Your lifestyle was just like the rest of this damned world. According to the prince of the power of the air, you walked in obedience to whatever Satan wanted you to do. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The rest of the world, the vast majority of them, are the children of wrath They follow the devil. They are the children of disobedience and they have been sealed with a spirit. They have the earnest of their inheritance. The devil. They're sealed. So they follow that spirit. They are held captive by him in his palace. And unless and until a stronger man comes and delivers them from the strong man, they will remain there. They are taken captive by Him at His will. Second Timothy two twenty five and 26. You followed the world's lifestyle in their idiotic rebellion against God and light. You were a willing and obedient servant to the devil himself. You were sealed with a different spirit, the devil that operates in his reprobate children. Now maybe some of you were regenerated at a young age. And by God's merciful grace in your life, you were taken to hear the gospel at a young age. So you don't have the past sins, degradation, shame, and guilt that some others sitting in here have. So you may not fully appreciate the text. But these Ephesians, when they were converted in a city given to the idolatry of Diana of the Ephesians, This church brought together the books of witchcraft that they had in their possession and put it in a pile and threw kerosene on it and burned them up. And the price of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. These had been devil worshipers. They knew when Paul wrote these words to them, they understood them perfectly clear. You need to understand them perfectly clear. That if... God regenerated you at an early age. He saved you from what you would have done. God has continually, every day of your life, put a hedge upon you if you are one of His and kept you from the extent of sinning that you otherwise would have done. Because if it were not for God, restraining the wrath of man, every single one of us would do every corrupt, perverse, abominable thing possible. It is the only explanation. And he says it in Psalm 76 and verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. God restrains men. Otherwise, this place would burst into total wide open pedal to the metal rebellion against God in open wickedness. But he restrains. So don't think because God changed you early that you wouldn't fit these three verses. These verses were written about you. When God inspired them through Paul's mouth and the pen of Tychicus, He was talking about you and me. Look at what we were like. We wanted the world. Friendship with the world The world owned us, and we owned the world, and we embraced it, and the devil himself. Verse 3, among whom, that is, the children of disobedience, those whose whole lives are given to disobeying God, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle, In times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were naturally just like them. We wanted to do the same things. We did the same things as far as God would allow us to do. And that is verse 3. We were just like the reprobates, the children of wrath, the vessels of wrath, the vessels of dishonor. There was no difference. We were totally corrupt. We were just like them. Don't ever think that you've been different. Amen. Right. Only by God's grace has He made a difference. Otherwise, we are just like them. And you have to embrace that and believe that in order to understand the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe. Amen. Verse 4. But God... But God... But God, because it's the exceeding greatness of His power. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. God chose to love some by an eternal decree of putting them in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. God's love toward His elect is based in mercy. God is not obligated to love any. He is more obligated. If you want to talk about the obligation of God to love you, he is more obligated to love the devil himself than he is you. The devil is a creature of far greater power, glory, might, and intelligence than you'll ever be. There's no obligation on God to love sinful humanity. And there's nothing in humanity that merits his love or that draws it forth. It's mercy. It's mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. Love is a choice of God's mercy. So it says in Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. How does He show mercy? He chooses us to be vessels of honor before the foundation of the world and puts us in the Lord Jesus Christ in an eternal union with Him and we are never viewed by God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shall be forever with the Lord. But God, verse 4, let's go to verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, see He's jumping back to that first verse to tell you that He's catching up after having given a long description of what it was like being just a natural man, now he's going to describe what it's like to be a spiritual man born again. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, ye are saved. We are born again and put into a vital living union with a living, risen, reigning, and returning Savior. We have been made a spiritual Vital, we are put into a vital spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was resurrected from the dead before us. He went into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. But we are, now we've always been in Christ eternally. And you've got to think about the five phases to properly understand these verses. Or you will blow over them and miss their meat. You will miss their depth. You will miss the enlightenment and having the eyes of your understanding opened. We have always been in Christ from the sense of His eternal decrees. We were in Christ when He died on the cross, legally. But being born again, we are vitally made a part of Him. There is a vital connection between Him and us. So we've been made alive together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. So what's the gracious salvation? It's God regenerating us when we were dead. It's God raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it goes on to say in verse 6, and God has also done these things in addition to giving us life. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now we're not there yet. When I say we're not there yet, in what way are we not there with Christ, in Christ, and all together with Christ? Finally. Right. Finally we're not there. Are we there eternally? Always have been. Are we there legally? Yep, yeah, names in the book of life are we there vitally? Yes, we are brought into a vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the spirits of just men made perfect. We have already come into a relationship with them. Hebrews 12:22 through 24. This verse this these this verse here Verse 6 is using the perfect tense, which means it's an action completed in the past that's still true when Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, that these Ephesians had been raised up together and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know why? Because he's the head and we're the body, and you can't really separate the two when we're talking about our vital union. Right. He's the groom and we're the bride, and you can't really separate the two when you're talking about our vital union. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. If he's there, we're there. And we're brought into a union by the fact that we were regenerated and given spiritual life, and we have within us the image of him that created him. We have the image of Jesus Christ inside us in the new man. Verse 7 Why is God doing all of this? That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. Now, which words do you like the most there? Is it exceeding? Is it riches? Is it His grace? Is it His kindness? Is it through Christ Jesus? What do you like about the verse? I hope you love everything about the verse. Why is all this being done? That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We didn't do anything to obtain, merit, earn, cooperate, participate in obtaining these blessings. They were given to us by the grace of God regenerating us from a state of death in trespasses and sins. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Grace saves us. Just go back up there to verse 5 and look what it says in parentheses. By grace ye are saved. When you're dead in trespasses and sins, the only thing operating is God's power, and that's by grace. So why does it say through faith? Because faith is the evidence that we have that this happened toward us because it started all the way over there in verse 19. The exceeding greatness of His power to usward Who believe? How do you know that you've been born again? First evidence. We believe. We hear the gospel and we believe. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. The preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Greeks. The Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews look for a sign. But we preach Christ crucified unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Faith is the vehicle by which we know that we are the sons of God regenerated by His exceeding great power. But that faith cannot be alone or it's mere devilish faith. Because faith without works is dead and we are supposed to add seven things to our faith according to Second Peter chapter 1. For by grace are ye saved through faith is the vehicle by which we understand it, have assurance of it, embrace it, lay hold of it prove it to ourselves that's why paul would say in 1thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 that knowing brethren beloved your election of god because of the work of faith in your life right. faith which works and that not of yourselves that salvation by god's grace is not of yourselves that and that, none of yourselves, is not applying to faith. It's applying to the salvation that is by God's grace, realized and understood and appreciated by faith. The whole thing is not of yourselves. The whole thing, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. This whole operation called resurrection or regeneration or quickening, for we are his workmanship. God's done the work. There's no one else doing the work. There's no preacher. There's no soul winner. There's no evangelist. It's God doing the work. For we are His workmanship, created. Notice this quickening, this resurrection, this regeneration is here called a creation. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, not because of them. And faith is the best and first good work which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has saved us in order to have good works, not because of our good works. It's the devil's lie to think that man can, by any act, assist God in this powerful work of creation, which is to regenerate us and to give us life, to quicken us from our state of death and trespasses and sins. The rich man in hell asked Jesus, Would you please send Lazarus to my five brothers? They're out on the golf course right now. Would you please send Lazarus back from the dead? If they were to see a man risen from the dead, I don't want them to come here. Do you know what Jesus said to that evangelistic idea? And it was a good idea. You would think if somebody came back from the dead, that would help people get saved. Do you know what Jesus said? If they don't like being in the synagogue where the scriptures are read every Sabbath day, they're not going to listen if one came back from the dead. Do you know what that's called? It's the T of tulip. Even though I don't like tulip all that much because the I and the P have some things missing, it's total depravity. Jesus understood it. If they don't like hearing my word read and explained, and they would rather golf on the Sabbath, they're not going to listen if someone came back from the dead. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 26 and verse 10 said, You can change the environment of anyone all you want, but he will not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness. Amen. And so we could read on and on and on. It takes special revelation of the Spirit for us to appreciate what God's done to us. And for us. You know, we should, we should appreciate the conversions in the Bible. Look what, for, look what God did for the Gadarene. Was that a pretty powerful workmanship? Did he recreate that Gadarene who wanted to be with Jesus? But yet the Pharisees conspired to kill him for what? Because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now if you knew that Jesus of Nazareth, who had healed 10,000 different diseases and had raised the dead at other times, had fed multitudes with a young lad's lunch, and now you had documented evidence by eyewitness accounts that he had raised Lazarus from the dead after four days being dead? Why would you conspire to kill him? Why wouldn't you believe on him? Why would you sit in a meeting with other people that got past the third grade and say, you know, that something that something staggering has been done, we can't deny. Well, then believe on him if you can't deny it. But they didn't believe on him. Right. They conspired to kill him. What causes a man to think that way? A state of death in trespasses and sins. Why would Adam hide in the trees of the garden instead of running out and begging his creator to forgive him for having sinned with his wife in eating that fruit? Look at what Jesus did for Saul of Tarsus. But yet Jews ran upon Stephen to stone him, though his face looked like an angel. Do you know that it tells us in the last verse of Acts chapter 6 that the face of Stephen shone like an angel? while he defended the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet they ran on him to kill him. If a man had the face of an angel, wouldn't you want to think about it before you killed him? Look what he did for Dionysius, Damaris, and others that had been feeding on the drivel in Athens. They got up and walked out of that assembly to follow the apostle Paul. But yet most Greeks mocked Paul, for the gospel was to them mere foolishness. Look what he did for a jailer in Philippi, and his whole pagan family. They heard the word of the Lord and believed in one night, and he baptized them all. But yet the magistrates of Philippi came and escorted Paul out of the city in spite of obvious miracles. Paul had already shown that he had power within him to say to a maid that had made her masters much money through soothsaying. He commanded the spirit to come out of her, and that spirit had to come out. That city had relied on that spirit for a long time. There had been an earthquake at midnight and it loosed the bonds and chains of every captive and they could have left that prison. Why would you want to escort a man like that out of your city when all the prisoners stayed? Because we're depraved. Right, right. And if God doesn't exercise His mighty power to change us, we cannot see, we cannot hear, we cannot think. We are corrupt abominable, perverse, upside down in everything God's revealed to us. Verse 20, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. This is the exceeding greatness of his power. It just didn't give his corpse life. It took that corpse, brought it by ascension into heaven, set it down at God's right hand, fully united with his spirit again, and gave Him rule over the universe. Amen. Now, can you tell by looking at 20 that there's some similar words in there to another verse that we've just been over? It's verse 6 of chapter 2. See, we've been raised up with Christ to sit in the heavenly places by a vital union with Him. We're not there yet. Finally. Let me go over it again. Are we already there eternally? Yep. Always been there in Christ eternally. Are we, th- are we with him legally? Tied up in Christ by the covenant of his death. We're in the Lamb's book of life of the Lamb slain. Vitally, after we're born again, we're in vital connection with him. Practically, aha, that's why we preach and that's why we've assembled today. Right. That our lives would look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But finally, we're not there yet. But in what's being what's being explained here, and that is our vital salvation, that is being given a new vital living nature. We're tied up with Christ vitally, and we're already in heaven. That way, that way, like just like we understand the phases of salvation when applied to other verses and concepts of salvation in the Bible. So verse 20, should you should draw a line almost if you need it. I remember many years ago, you know, seeing these connections and just rejoicing in the power that it took to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and put Him at God's right hand. But that same power was exercised toward us, and we are there vitally as well. Verse 21 tells us that that position that Jesus has is far above all. Which word do you like there? He's above? What? So you like the word all? Do you like the combination of above all? Or do you like the combination far above? How do you like it? I love the Holy Spirit. And I say that with as much reverence as I can say it in those words. Because my love doesn't add anything to Him. But I love the Holy Spirit for the way that He could move the pen of Tychicus in the mind and mouth of the Apostle Paul to give His words like this. Far above all principality and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. They didn't need to fear Nero, and they didn't need to fear Lucifer, or Satan, the old serpent, or the devil. Verse 22, And hath put all things under his feet, that is the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the operating person here? God the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, hath put all things under the feet of Christ, and gave him, God gave Jesus to be the head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ is the head of everything. Everything is under His feet for the benefit of the church. And so He's always active on behalf of His church. Sometimes He tries them. As you heard from Psalm 11 this morning, He tries the righteous with difficulties. At other times He cuts men down like Herod Agrippa II who he was eaten of worms after giving a speech and not giving God the glory When people praised him too highly, angels released Peter from prison where he was held in chains by four quanturnians of soldiers. Four sets of four soldiers. Four squads of Roman soldiers chained to Peter. He was released. The prison door was opened by angels. Angels were active because Jesus Christ is the head of them all for the benefit of the church. Verse 23 is where we'll finish. Verse 23 is wonderful, which is his body. The last noun in verse 22 is the church. This is the church universal. This is the church of God's elect. This is the entire church, the body, the congregation of God's family. Why? Because it's his body described in this context, the fullness of him. Ephesus didn't make up the fullness of Jesus Christ. The church of Greenville doesn't make up the fullness of Jesus Christ It's the full body of all of God's elect that make up the fullness of His body. And so we understand that of that church. The general assembly and church of the firstborn, as it is described in Hebrews 12. Jesus fills all things in His divine nature as the omnipresent God. Jesus fills all things as supplying the church with all its needs. Look at 4.10 in the same epistle. Ephesians 4.10 He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that He might fill all things. And what does that mean as it goes on? And He gave some apostles and some prophets. He fills us with every spiritual blessing. He fills us with His Spirit. How do you think you get filled with the Spirit of God but by the Lord Jesus Christ? We want to see it in its breadth, not in its constrained uh, sense or meaning. Of Jesus fills all things. He filleth all in all. He fills us with all kinds of spiritual blessings. John would write in John chapter 1 that we have seen Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. And we are filled with those things from Him. But notice it says that we are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. We as the elect and the predestinated sons of God are the fullness of Jesus Christ Himself. Quickly, but these are this is precious. Let this gospel fact overwhelm and move you. Right. Jesus is incomplete without you. Because we are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. The everlasting covenant of redemption entirely and eternally united us together. I have been stressing this on a building crescendo basis for a couple of years called the eternal union of the elect with Jesus Christ made so by God to, to doubt your salvation is to doubt Christ it's to doubt God's love of Christ as I've said things that are totally true there is as much chance as Jesus Christ going to hell as there is for anyone in him right it's impossible You're the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. If you are a changed believer, if you're just a believer, you have no evidence of anything except that you have a devilish faith and you know where they're going. Jesus' is covenant head and surety for the elect because that makes Him a public person. He is a public person like the first Adam was. He was given the representation of a group of people and He will... Save every one of those. Just like every one in Adam, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. He does not have a proper purpose for existence without you. For He was ordained for you as one of His elect. The elect complete Him by filling out His body, filling out His purpose, filling out His commission, filling out His office. His office is to be a high priest. A high priest requires two parties. You should read Galatians where it says that you can't have a mediator without two parties. A mediator is not a mediator of one. A mediator is a mediator of two. Oh Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Without our bodies, we are incomplete. Without your body, if I cut your body off with a chainsaw right now from one of these brothers' trucks, are you complete? You're terribly destroyed. With our bodies and heads, we're complete. He's the head, we're the body. And thus He can't exist without us. By the very nature of His existence. By the covenant of God. That the Word would be made flesh and we would be in Him. And we were in Him from before the foundation of the world. Before any of this stuff was formed. Before Genesis 1-1. Before the earth was without form and void. We were in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole thing exists as a stage to play out a drama of God having a chosen people. He will not lose a single one of them. It's the combination of our head and body that makes a complete person. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and we are the body, thus a complete kingdom and person. He God chose this metaphor or symbol and applied it so you should not doubt it at all. This is not Paul's ingenuity. It's not your pastor's ingenuity. This is God, the Holy Spirit, telling us this is the way it is. God chose us in him before the creation of the world. We cannot be separated from him. Why did Jesus die for us? Chapter 5 tells us that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Do you want to know why Jesus died for you? To present you perfect to himself. Do you think he's going to fail? Not a chance. Verses 25 through 28 of chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their own, to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Jesus Christ loves himself by loving us because he's going to present us to himself a glorious church without blemish. We were chosen to it. Remember from chapter 1? I hope you can remember. We were chosen to it before the foundation of the world. But then verses 29 through 32, we are his bride like Eve was of Adam. 29, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. If you'll follow the... If you'll follow down through here, instead of looking for advice on how to take care of your wife, be looking for joy of how God is taking care of you in Christ, you will enjoy these verses. 29. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church, his own flesh, his own flesh, even as the Lord the church, his own flesh, his own flesh, flesh, even as the Lord the church, How many times do I need to say it for you all to jump out of your seats and shout hallelujah as His own flesh? The way you love yourself. Yeah, it's the strongest love you've ever known. (laughs) Oh yes, don't anybody try to tell me otherwise. The way you love yourself is Jesus loving the church because it's His body. That's how the arguing is going here. That's how Paul's making his argument. Verse 30. I hope I said it enough times from verse 20. His own flesh. His own flesh. Even as the Lord the church. The Lord loves the church as a man loves his own flesh. Verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Eve was a rib taken out of Adam. She was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. By regeneration, by election, resulting in our regeneration, we are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Look at the relationship. Look at the verse Amen. for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. what What other terminology does he need to use for you to understand? that you have been brought into a vital relationship with Jesus Christ as a real head and you are a body. Not a metaphor, not just a metaphorical thing of a church on earth that Jesus is our head, but that we are involved in a very vital relationship with Jesus Christ mm-hmm. by regeneration. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Amen. I'm not really talking about Adam and Eve and I'm not really talking about Joshua and Natalie Unger. I am talking about Christ and the church. This cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And so we are one flesh. And he goes on to tell husbands to love their wives, and wives to reverence their husbands. This is Ephesians chapter 1. It only has four sentences. I hope that it's been profitable for your souls. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.